with this, uh, this song that we just sang called the doxology, right? It's, a, it's kind of a, a Christian word. It's not a word you would know maybe if you didn't go to church or if you didn't hang out in pubs with theologians or uh, if you didn't read a bunch of Christian books. You probably would never hear the word doxology. It's a Christian word. And it means uh, the glory of God. Doxology means the glory of God. And another Christian word uh, is theology, right? And which means the study of God. And a, a gentleman by the name of J.I. Packer, who's an old theologian and has written many books, he says that theology must always lead us to doxology. That the study of God should always lead us to the glory of God. And so this song means the glory of God. And you may ask yourself, why is it entitled the glory of God? But uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Blessings are all things that are beneficial to us. Blessings are for our well-being. The breath that we breathe, the life that we live, the clothes that we wear, the money that passes through our fingers or sits in our bank accounts, the friendships that we share along the journey, these are all blessings and they all come from God, as Scripture tells us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. He is the giver. He is the provider. Praise be to Him. He gets the glory. He gets the fame. God has given us these things. We didn't give them to ourselves. We didn't come up with these things ourselves. God, in every aspect of life, is the provider. He is the giver of good things from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below, all living things. Here below speaks of the here below of earth. We are the here below. We are the creatures of here below. Speaks to living things, animals, peoples, plants. But it's not just limited to those things that are deemed living, right? It's everything that is in existence, everything that has been created. Praise God, all creatures here below. Everything that is in existence. God's glory is above. It is beyond our own. He is fully unknowable, yet He has disclosed Himself to us for His glory. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. The heavenly host can, uh, can certainly speak to the stars and the, the spheres above, right? Uh, but in this case, it also speaks to the angels of heaven. The, the very angels of heaven, when, when people in Scripture encountered them, they, they fell to the ground in fear and trembling. Angels are, are something that if we ourselves were to come into contact with, I think would instill a fear in us because of their brilliance and their greatness and their uniqueness, their otherness. Uh, Yet God is so much further beyond angels even. The glory of God is before them. Even they are to worship God. I was was talking to my mother-in-law the other day and we were talking about uh, this passage in the book of Revelation, the New Testament book of Revelation there are these four living creatures, three or four, I can't remember now the number, and uh, they're odd-looking creatures. These, I, I would imagine these things fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. You know, there are a lot of eyes, weird things happening, six wings, uh, as most of the creatures in Revelation are. These things have six wings, and with two of the wings, they're flying, and if, with two of the wings, they're covering their eyes from the glory of God. And they're, with the other two, they're covering their feet and they're flying before the throne of God day and night, day and night, proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And this is something that doesn't stop. They don't take breaks. This is something that Scripture tells us is happening ever before the throne from beginning to end. And I, I once saw a speaker and he kind of speculated on, on, on a possibility of this. This isn't Scripture, so take it for, for what it is. It's a speculation. That these, these beings are before God. They're before the throne of God. And as they call out, holy, 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 which, by the way, the number three, anytime something is repeated three times in Scripture, it is a God-sized thing. You know, if you repeat something twice, it's, you know, it's important, but three times, this is a reserved for God. This is a God-sized thing. They repeat, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And each time they get to the end of that, God reveals a little bit of himself to them. And they respond, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And he says to them, I am merciful. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And he says, I am loving. And they say, holy, holy. You get the picture of this call and response thing that's happening in worship up in the throne room of heaven. That the depths of God's being are boundless. They are unmeasurable and infinite. And he reveals himself to his angels and, and they, they just respond and respond and respond and respond day and night. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. The glory of God is a big, big deal. It is huge. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, about the importance of God-centered worship, that it's our reason for existence, that even our redemption and our reconciliation are to the glory of God. They're not for our own glory, they're for God's glory. And ultimately we said that when we are most satisfied in God, He, uh, he will be most glorified in us. The question remains though, right, uh, I mean, we, we've said that worship is important, that it's our reason for existence, the glory of God is the reason for our redemption, but the question remains, what does God want from us in worship, right? What is he calling us to? What does he want from us? And I, thought, I was thinking about this this week, and I thought it'd be kind of fun if we could have some sort of a Scrooged experience where we could just kind of leave time and, and go visit uh, different things and, that are happening. Or if we could have an out-of-body experience, maybe some of you would relate to that more, I don't know. If we could just somehow hover in the rafters of the churches across the world and, uh, and look down at people as they worship, what are the things that we would see? And uh, if you're comfortable, I would love for this to be a conversational thing. What are, what are some of the things, as you think about floating in the rafters of the church, looking down, what are the things that you're seeing people doing? Like, what are they engaging in? What, what's happening? Any, any suggestions? Okay, raising their hands. Singing. Giving thanks. What are, what are some of the actions that you're seeing people do? Confession, on their knees, they're bowing down, right, right? Prayer, prayer, folding their hands, bowing their heads. Eating donuts and coffee, that was one I was thinking of. <laughs> that happens. Um, these are all things that we see, right, as we float above, as we look down, we, we observe people doing this, but, but here's the deal. Um, I kind of led us astray in, in, in that. Worship is not something that can be grasped by merely watching and looking. 
Uh, it's something that one must experience or participate in. Worship is always an active response. It's always an active response to the person and work of God. Worship is predominantly an action. And in the scriptural sense of the word, worship is not passive. If we look at the scriptures, the most used Hebrew word for worship means to bow self down. Right? There's action involved. The, the very word, most used word in the Hebrew language in scripture for worship is to bow down. The very most used Greek term means to kiss the hand towards. It's a word that I like to say. It's called, uh, it's proskineu, I think. It's kind of a neat word. It means to kiss the hand towards, or it's like blowing a kiss, or kissing the hand, right? There's action involved. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, we're, we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? I mean, it's a very familiar passage to us. And the word love here in this Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is, uh, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce this how I think it is pronounced, would be achaba, which is A-H-A-B-A, achaba, the word for love. And it speaks of two very important truths about our love and our worship of God. And the first one, the word implies warm feelings or romantic attachments like you would have with your spouse. God is saying, I want you to love me. I want you to be warm and affectionate towards me. Uh, yesterday, I was, I was standing in the kitchen with Hannah, and, and she kind of came up and, and leaned against me, and, and I put my arms around her, and, and I just kind of stroked her arm, and she leaned her head against my face, and it was this beautiful moment. It was, it was a moment where, where, where I just really felt this affection towards her and her towards me, it was warm, it was beautiful, you know, and it was just something as simple as stroking my wife's arm and her kind of leaning against me. It was a beautiful moment. It was, a, it was romantic and it was warm. And, and this is part of what God wants from us and wants, wants with us. I mean, he, he wants to be affectionate towards us and he wants us to be affectionate towards him. And I realize that that might be an uncomfortable thing for a lot of us in, in looking at God and looking at worship. But ultimately, that's what Scripture tells us. And secondly, this word speaks of, this word achaba, love, speaks to the choice in loving and worshiping God. So it's not just, uh, you know, love me when you feel good about it. Uh, love me and worship me when you're feeling romantic towards me or feeling affectionate towards me. It's, it's the choice that is involved in loving and worshiping God. And in it, for those of us who are married... And I've only been married for, I guess, coming on eight months, so I can learn a lot from those of you who, who have been married for much longer. We know, right, that it's not always smoochy-poochy, kissy-lovey-dovey affair, right? It's not always a feel-good kind of deal. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves that we love our spouses. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves that we uh, love those that we're sharing our lives with. Uh, relationships are not an easy thing and this is what God says. He's saying there's choice involved. It's not always going to be an easy thing to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sometimes you have to choose to do this. The funny thing about uh, lifting weights, if you're weightlifters, is that oftentimes they just don't lift themselves. You know, Sometimes you have to really exert effort and strength. And, and this, is, this is no different in worship and love, uh, whether... 
loving your spouse or worship and loving God ultimately. It takes effort and it takes determination with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. This love that God calls us to is so much greater but not unlike our love for each other. We are to worship the Lord with all that we are, all that we have. Robert Weber is a, is a kind of a worship guru in the Christian world. He writes a lot of books. He teaches a lot of classes. You may or may not have heard of him. Um, that's beside the point. What he says is that worship demands nothing less than the complete conscious and deliberate participation of the worshiper. Let me say that again. Worship demands nothing less than the complete conscious and deliberate participation of the worshiper our complete self. He says, Worship is the people's celebration of the living, dying, and rising of Christ, a celebration which is offered to God's glory. The work of the people is to celebrate. And this work of the people is something that the people experience. That is, they do it. It is not done to them or for them, but by them. Again, worship is an action. It's a verb, right? These, these words lead us to involvement. In fact, if you even think about um, Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And this is what kind of baffles me. The end says, This is your spiritual act of worship, right? There's no segmentation between a spiritual act of worship and a physical act of worship. He's saying your spiritual act of worship will indeed include your body, you know, offering your body as a sacrifice. There's no segmentation between body and spirit here. They're one and one. Worship is expressed. It's an action. It's a verb. So here's, here's the problem. That's all really good stuff. The, the problem comes in when there's a total disconnection of heart and action. And I think uh, at various points of our lives, we can all really relate to this. Worship is an action, but is not action in and of itself, right? If we think of worship as a wrapped gift, the, the wrapping and the box of the gift are, are the expression, the songs, the prayers, the words, the clapping, the raising of hands, the bowing down. All these things are the wrapping on the gift. But uh, the actual gift is what's inside the box. Nobody would go to their daughter's birthday party and give her a finely, masterfully wrapped, empty box. Right? I mean, it's absurd. Your daughter would cry and cry and cry. Rightfully so. But somehow, we fall into singing a song with a heart that's disconnected. Right? We offer God a finely wrapped box, a package, with maybe nothing in it. And I don't think that anyone really believes that God, you know, just wants a song. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's what we're professing anyway. Uh, you know, if, if God were really just a music fan, it would be a lot easier to buy him a giant God-sized jukebox with an unending supply of quarters, of course. Or better yet, maybe uh, an iPod Nano or something that he could watch his favorite TV shows on as well. You know, that's not what we think. We, we know that God doesn't just desire singing. We know that God just doesn't desire empty words. He, he doesn't say lifting your hands equals worship or bowing down equals worship. The truth of the issue, the place where the problem lies, what I think, is, is in the forgetful nature of humanity. It's, if you think back to the Israelites, Old Testament, 
They've been led out of slavery. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They've been led out of the oppressive hand of slavery. And God, God calls them to set up these religious festivals, festivals that they could remember his work, that they could remember what he did for them, you know, that they could remember that he is their God and they are his people. All these festivals and worship celebrations, that's the reason they were intentionally or originally set up. God didn't want his people to forget. He says, you know, tell your children and have them tell their children. Pass this truth down. I am God. You are my people. I did this to lead you out of slavery. The, the book Deuteronomy, I mean, the actual meaning of that term is the second telling, right? This is the second telling of God's work on behalf of his people to bring them out of slavery. He didn't want them to forget. But ultimately, we as humans are very forgetful. Even in really, really big things that God has done. And history confirms this. You know, I find myself getting into routine so much, I'll drop Hannah off at work in the morning, and I'll know that I need to get gasoline on my way to work because my yellow gas light is blinking at me. And, uh, you know, in the span of a couple blocks, I just am back into the routine of my drive, and I get all the way here to work, and, and I haven't filled up with gas. You know, I, I mean, maybe you experience something like this. It's easy in those things that we find ourselves in routine to just totally forget. You know, you just kind of plug and play and drive and you put it on autopilot, so to speak. But God is very clear that this is not what he wants. It's not what he desires of us. If you, if you turn to the book of Amos in the, in the Old Testament, uh, if you have a Bible, you can. If not, it's, it's not a big deal. I'll read it to you. Uh, Amos chapter 5, and this is verses 21 through 23. And this is God communicating to his people. He is rather upset with them. It's strong language. So, so hear these words. He says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice offerings choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. It's pretty, pretty strong language. And these are things that God set up. He, he put these things into play. He told them, he told his people to have these religious festivals, these celebrations. He told them to come before him with singing. He told them to bring fellowship offerings and sin offerings and uh, and thank offerings. So where's the, where's the disconnect? Like, I mean, at what point did God set this stuff in motion? And now he's saying, I hate it. I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. Away with the noise of your songs. I don't want to hear the music of your harps. The consistency of, of the Israelite people tells us that they were totally disconnected from their offering. They brought a, a fellowship offering to God absent of any fellowship with God. They brought a sin offering to the Lord for the remission of their sins, totally separate from any contrition and brokenness. There was no connection to the relationship. It's a lot, it's a lot like when uh, we get speeding tickets. It's easy to just go pay the fine and not really feel a sense of contrition for speeding. Don't necessarily change our actions in that. God is saying, look, the important thing to me is not your offering. I don't want your squash. I don't want your grain. I don't want your cattle. I want you, right? Ultimately, 
I want you. I want your heart. The, the important part of a fellowship offering is the fellowship. The important part of a sin offering is the contrition in which it is given, the brokenness in which it is given. Sin separates us from God, and it's, it's, it's coming back and saying, God, I know that you, you want something better for me because I know who you are in my life. Jesus in the New Testament says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me in the book of Mark. This is the hard part for us. This is where the challenge comes. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, I can't stand here and and judge your hearts. And uh, you shouldn't be judging the heart of the person sitting next to you or the person sitting behind you. This This is the call this morning, is to look and reflect into your own heart. Are you honoring God with with just your lips? Is it just lip service? Is it an empty offering? Is it a finely wrapped box with nothing in it? Or is the treasure, the real treasure of your offering to God inside? The songs, the bowing down, the raising of our hands, these are all just expressions of something that's happening internally. And we already said that that sometimes it's not easy, sometimes we don't feel real close to God. There are times when when there's such a thick membrane between us and, and it just feel, feels like God could be any further away. And those are the times when, when we need to follow the instructions that God gives us to love Him, to worship Him with all of our strength. We need to really enforce the choosing, the choosing to worship the Lord. Other times, that membrane is so thin it feels like we're just pressing up against God. When we're so connected to His work in our lives, when we're so connected to his person, to who he is, that it's easy, it's so easy to come into the assembly and say, oh, God, you're so good, you're so great. We love you, we worship you. Ronald B. Allen is another, uh, another author, and he said, worship is more an issue of the heart than a state of the art. It's more about what's in here. But you need a vehicle to express your heart, right? Worship is always expressed. It isn't something that just sits inside of us. It is always expressed to the glory of God. Hebrews 12:28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. And here God is just telling us, here's the acceptable way to worship me with reverence and awe. Since we are receiving a kingdom, that's in response to God's work. And in Romans, it starts out, therefore, in view of God's mercy, in response to God's work, Let us be thankful. Let us offer our lives as living sacrifice. Let us worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe. If you have a Bible, turn to uh, the book of Luke in the New Testament. And I want us to just look at this picture that's drawn for us. Uh, And I think this speaks volumes. It's uh, Luke 7, starting in verse 36. It says, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. 
And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed, one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So there's two people that owed money to a moneylender. One owed this amazing amount of money, 500 denarii. The other one owed a smaller amount, 50 denarii. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Jesus asked him. And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. This woman, in other translations, is considered and called the notorious sinner. She is somebody that is known by everybody in the village for whatever it is that she does. They're not specific about what it is that she does. Uh, She's probably a prostitute of some sort. I don't know. But she is known by everybody. And, And here Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house, right? Pharisees are the the religious folk of the day. I mean, these guys were top-notch. And, and Jesus is there dining with them. And I'll tell you, Pharisees did not interact with sinners. They would probably cross to the other side of the street and walk past them there so they wouldn't interact with them. If they interacted with them at all, it was probably in a derogatory sense. They probably degraded them, belittled them, maybe spit on them. I don't know. And yet this woman who at some point has had interaction with Jesus before this meeting, has, because her sins have been forgiven before she ever shows up to this meeting. She has been moved to a point of thanksgiving, of appreciation, to where she's willing to show up to a very, very uncomfortable situation where Jesus is at to bring her offering. And her offering is costly. It's costly in her pride, in her humility. She humbles herself in front of a group of people, probably to the point where she didn't even realize that those people were there anymore. She brought a gift of this alabaster, which uh, some commentaries say that this was a year's wage. This, this jar of, al- of, of perfume cost her a year's wage. And, and she just weeps in response to God's work in her life, in, in response to the touch of Jesus, to the healing of Jesus, to the forgiveness of Jesus that he offers this woman who is the, the, the downcast of society. I think God desires this kind of worship, the kind of worship that is connected to his work, to his person, the kind of worship that is not uh, inhibited by pride. It's not based in, oh, I'm scared of what people are going to think of me if I weep on the feet of this prophet or the Messiah if I wipe my hair, wipe, wipe his feet with my hair, which, by the way, in that culture, it was, that was scandalous for a woman to have her hair, hair down. It was always worn up. This is, this is what God is calling us to. You know, do, you, do you sense God's Spirit speaking to you this morning in, in some way 
of your, about your worship, whether he's encouraging you and saying, yeah, you know what, you're, you're there. You're, you're walking into that. I'm encouraged by your worship. Your worship is acceptable. It's connected to my work in your life. It's connected to who I am. Maybe God is encouraging you in a different way. And I believe it is encouraging. I don't believe it's condemning. I don't believe it's judging. But I believe that God encourages us when we are not in the place of acceptable worship. When our worship is maybe the empty box, He just says, you know, I want to encourage you to remember me, to think, to contemplate. Allow me to fill you with my story. Let me speak my story to you and let that move you to a place of worship. Worship is humble, but it's bold. It's humble because it's based in the fear of God, the knowledge of who is God and the God-man relationship. But it's bold in proclaiming and expressing appreciation for the person and work of God.